Welcome to Bible Time with Pastor Brian. Obviously, I am Pastor Brian, and I'm so honored that you all have chosen to join me today as I study through Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Pray that our time together is honoring to God and that we all can learn from the wonderful truth of Scripture that is contained in this passage. To begin, uh, the Beatitudes, which are what we're reading today, are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' largest single teaching in the entire Gospels. And for a long time in my life, I wondered where in the world that phrase came from. Because all of these verses that are in here, at least nine of them, begin with the word blessed or happy if you're reading a different translation. And I was wondering where they got Beatitudes from. And so when I was doing my studies into this, I realized and learned that Beatitudes is actually, it comes from a Latin word, Beatitudo, which means blessedness or happiness. And that kind of made sense because most of our current biblical translations that we have use a version of Scripture called the Vulgate, which was a Latin translation made by Jerome in the 300s AD to give kind of a basis to their translations of the Bible. And so these verses, or at least verses 3 through 12, begin with the Latin word beati or beatus, depending upon which one you're looking at. And that just means blessed or happy. And so that, that makes a lot of sense that we would call it the Beatitudes because that would be the blessings or the blessedness um, that Jesus is giving here in the scriptures. So this does occur early in Jesus's ministry, um, just right after the calling of the disciples or some of the disciples anyway, um, when they're out on a boat fishing, um, two with their parents or with their dad and then two by themselves. And also Jesus's temptation in the wilderness and everything that you can go back and read in chapter 4 if you would like to. So, verse 1 of the scripture itself says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So, what's going on here is Jesus is in front of this big multitude of people, and he goes and he sits down on the top of this mountain. Now, Matthew Henry, he was an 18th century theologian, great biblical scholar. Uh, he's known for his uh, commentary of the entire Bible. Um, great resource if you ever want to look into it. Um, he draws an interesting parallel in this passage that I thought I would share with you guys. He draws a parallel between Matthew 5 and all the way back in Exodus chapter 19, where God is giving the laws to Moses. And God comes down from heaven to this mountaintop in order to speak with Moses, to give him um, the commandments and the law that we read in um, the Tanakh. And so he draws that comparison because God comes from heaven to earth, and then Jesus comes up from the earth to the top of this mountain, kind of showing that he is the bridge between God and man and also the fulfillment of the law that God gave to Moses on another mountain, in Mount Sinai. 
Um, this mountain is an entirely different mountain. But just kind of showing that there's a connection there. And then going on to verse 2, he says, He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, So who is them? Now, I know that's grammatically incorrect. It's the reason I'm a history teacher and not an English teacher, I guess. But who, who are these people? In order to find this, you have to look at the passage, and you look at the context clues that are given there. And the last group of people that are mentioned specifically before you get to the word them are the disciples. So this entire teaching that we're going to be covering today, plus a little bit more after this, is directed towards the disciples that Jesus had at the moment. And so why in the world would it be them? Why, why them? It's because they are the ones that are there to truly learn from Christ. Um, remember, the disciples back in chapter 4, if you've read that, and if you know the story, they are there, Peter, James, and John, because Jesus has called them to be there. He told them, hey, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they don't know how to do that. And so they see this moment here where Jesus is speaking to them as a chance to learn how to be fishers of men like they were called into. And so they are following because they know that they want to learn and that they know that they can only learn from Jesus himself. And that is exactly what Jesus is about to do here in the scripture that we're about to read in verse 3. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, blessing and happiness are normally reserved for those that are rich or wealthy or not experiencing poverty or anything like that. Um, it's, it's a great connotation when you think of blessedness and happiness. So when he connects these two together, where he says those that are poor in spirit are to be happy and they're to be considered blessed, now, the Greek words that are used there are tokos pneuma, and so pneuma just means anything concerning the spirit that controls how humans feel, how we think, how we act. But then the tokos comes from the word patasol, which means to crouch or be burdened to the point of being brought down, almost like somebody carrying like a really, really heavy load on their back. They're going to kind of hunch over as they're carrying it because it's really super heavy. And so that's the patasso that gives the basis to the patokos that is mentioned here when it says poor in spirit. So somebody that is poor in spirit, it is someone who is burdened down with the state that their spirit is in. They realize that their spirit, like their spiritual condition, is not good and that it needs to be fixed in some form or fashion. And so when he says this poor in spirit, it's somebody that realizes their need for something different and for forgiveness. And there's a contradiction here between what the world thinks about poverty and wealth and what Jesus shares about poverty and wealth. So in the world, it is the rich and the wealthy that have the riches and the wealth. They are the ones that have those things because that's who they are. But in Christ's kingdom, the one that he is bringing to the world here, the wealth of his kingdom belongs to those who realize that they are in poverty, that, they've, that they realize their spiritual just bankrupt state that they are in and are trying to remedy that through knowing him. And so it continues on in verse 4 and says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
And now these these words or these verses, not these words, connect to each other in the fact that you know when you are poor in spirit, when you realize the horrible condition that your um, that your spiritual walk is in, it's going to make you mourn. And the word that's used there is pentheo, and it means to mourn or to lament something. And when I think of lamenting or mourning, I think of something so much deeper than just sadness. I think of something that is just completely broken. I'm put in my mind's eye of the prophets of the Old Testament and even some of the kings in the Old Testament being brought down just so mournfully about the things that are going on around them, about the state of the people and their own state of affairs in their own heart, that they get down in sackcloth and ashes and they mourn for what has been happening. And so that's, that's what comes to my mind when he says that about blessed are those that mourn or happy are those that mourn. Because you know those those don't seem to fit very well together. Happiness and mourning don't 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 fit. But he's telling them, be of good cheer, be happy, be feel blessed. That those of you that are mourning over your spiritual state or the spiritual state of others or the spiritual state of this world, the brokenness of it, or anything that requires us to feel those like feelings of mourning, such as grief or loss, be blessed and be comforted. That you will be comforted. And you will be comforted through him. You know, if you look back in the Gospels, even Jesus mourned and wept over things. In Matthew chapter 23, he mourned over Jerusalem's rejection of him. He lamented over it. He wept. He cried over just the weight and burden of their rejection and their sinfulness. And in John chapter 11, I know I'm kind of jumping to a different book. But if you go to John chapter 11, it says that Jesus mourns over Lazarus' death. Now, he's not mourning for Lazarus. Don't, don't get that mistaken. He's definitely not mourning for him because he knows what, exactly what's about to happen to Lazarus. Lazarus is about to rise from the grave because Jesus is going to you know, resurrect him from the dead. But he is mourning and weeping over the hurt and pain that Lazarus' death has caused. He sees some people that he knows and that he loves and that he cares for. His friends. I mean, Lazarus is mentioned as a friend of his. And of course, he had to have known Mary and Martha and all of them already. And so when they are weeping and mourning over the loss of their brother or some of the family members that are there, they're weeping and mourning over the loss of Lazarus. It causes Jesus to mourn with them because just that profound showing of grief is just unavoidable. You know, we're told in Scripture also to mourn with those that mourn and to weep with those that weep because that is, that is our task. We are to show love and kindness and compassion to people no matter what situation that they may find themselves in. And even though that does happen, we are given this comfort and this hope that when we do mourn, we will be comforted through Jesus. So mourning itself is not a bad thing. Don't, don't ever think it's a bad thing. But those of us that are in Christ can rest on the promise that when we mourn, he will be there to comfort us. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this word right here is really interesting. Uh, praos is the word that's used that we translate to gentle or meek. And one thing about meekness, it is not weakness. Um, for the longest time in my life, when I would hear the word meek, I would immediately associate it with being, you know, weak or just kind of, you know, not aggressive. But that's not what meekness is at all. Meekness is willing to yield and to submit to someone else and to their authority. One thing that when I was studying for this that I found that is described as meek 
is a warhorse. And you don't think of a warhorse as being weak because they're not. They're pretty strong in and of themselves there. They have the ability to be powerful, but the only way that they can reach the highest potential of what they have been given is by submitting to the authority of the one controlling them and the one leading them and guiding them, the rider, the one, you know, the guy controlling them there. That's, that's the only way that they can achieve that. And so with us, we are to be meek towards God. We are to submit to his authority, to his control over our life. And in that way, we can reach the potential that he has for us. We can be the person that God has planned for us to be and that he has given us the ability to become. But we have to submit to him. And so those that submit, God says that the earth will be theirs. Blessed are the gentle. And so... Mankind has this ability to be strong and to be bold and to crush those who stand against us. Because, you know, when you look at history, history is full of people that were ambitious and strong, and they would conquer other people and create these kingdoms of the world. Well, all they could do was create a kingdom. God promises the world to those that submit to his authority, that forsake the ambitions and pride of mankind to try to add to our own and try to conquer other people's places or things or what have you in order to add to what we have. So those that yield and submit to Christ's authority will be granted much more than any ambitious ruler of men ever will be. Why is this? It's because they recognize that Christ's leadership, not their own, is the only way to truly live up to God-given potential, and they choose surrendering to Christ over enmity with God. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, hunger and thirst in their truest sense are powerful feelings of need and desire. They're not just simple passing feelings of, oh, my tummy's grumbling a little bit. I haven't eaten in an hour or two, or, oh, I'm really thirsty. I haven't had any water since this morning or since last night. Hunger and thirst bring about such deeper, deeper connotations than that. They are the strong, this powerful feeling and desire that we have with inside of us that wants whatever that is, that wants that food, that wants that water. So Jesus compares those. He says, if you have that same desire for righteousness, for integrity, for thinking or feeling or acting correctly, rejoice because you will be satisfied in him. So rest in that truth today. And then going on to verse 7, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is not just forgiveness. You know, you, you might have heard that in church a lot, where you're supposed to give mercy and grace and forgiveness. And those three things, yes, they play in together, but they're not exactly the same thing. There are differences there. You know, if you look up the definition for mercy, it is when somebody extends forgiveness and they abstain and choose not to execute a justified punishment upon someone that deserves it. So as Christians, mercy will always have to be a part of who we are and a part of our everyday lives. And we are to share that with others. Because, you know, if you go to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives them a parable that goes along with this of a servant that is forgiven of much and then... Just a couple verses later, he has somebody that owes him 
way less than what he owed his master and was forgiven of, and he chose to forgive none and sought out repayment for this debt that was pennies compared to what he had owed and had been forgiven of. So God shows his mercy to those that are merciful. And not just that, mercy is seen as leaving empty-handed when you are owed something. But God promises something greater than earthly revenge or payback. He promises forgiveness of things that only he can forgive. So when you have the power and you have the ability to forgive somebody and to be merciful, you should. Because there are things in this life that humans can't forgive. That there is no amount of sorrow or repentance on our account that, towards someone else or towards the situation that we can receive that mercy and that grace and that love and forgiveness aside from Jesus Christ himself. And so he is the one that is able to judge us righteously. He is the one that is able to execute punishment. And we should seek after his mercy and his forgiveness because he is the one that is worthy to judge those things. Moving on to verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, our hearts are sinful and they are stained with that sin. So how do we get a pure one? We can't on our own accord. There's nothing that I can do to cleanse my heart, to make it right on my own. The only way that I am able to have a pure heart is by surrendering my heart to Jesus and surrendering to his righteousness and exchanging my filthy rags that I have for the perfection that he is and that he has in his own righteousness. And built into this is a promise that those of us who are that have that pure heart that Jesus has placed inside of us, we have a promise that we can see God. And we are pure, not we are pure because he makes us pure and we're we're not perfect. We still sin, but we should seek repentance for our sins. You know, when you are um, a Christian or if you were a Christian Sin should hurt you. You should feel mournful and sorrowful when you do sin and when you recognize that you have sinned. And when you look around and you think, well, how in the world am I going to know who's a Christian? How am I going to know who's following after Jesus? Look at the fruits that they bear because the fruits never lie. They can't. People can lie. People can put on masks and make everything look fine. But the fruit that they produce, the life that they live, the things that they say, the actions that they do, the way that they treat other people, that is how you know who they are. And if they are a follower of Jesus, they will reflect his character in the fruit that they have and in the fruit that they bear. And so that is how we are to know who has that pure heart and that who one day will be able to see God face to face. Verse 9, moving on down here, says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, I wrote down here that there are two things you need in order to bring peace. One, you need to know what peace is. You can't make something that you don't know. And two, you have to have it within you. You can't share something that you don't have. So how do you know and you have peace? You know, believe in, and trust on Christ, the Prince of Peace. In this, you pattern your life according to Christ's example and are counted among the sons of God as you join in the mission of peace on earth. And in verses uh, 10 through 12 here, it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when you realize your poverty in your own spirit, as was mentioned in the first beatitude back there, you're going to want to share that with other people. And I think the connection there, the, the fact that in verse 10 and in verse number uh, 3, that the promise that is given to um, the beatitude that is being mentioned, they're the same thing. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So those that are that the pure in, or poor in spirit, not pure in spirit, those that are poor in spirit are going to be compelled to share that gospel with others because they don't just realize their own spiritual poverty. They realize the spiritual poverty of others as well. And because of that, because of that spiritual poverty that they see in themselves and in others, it'll be unavoidable to want to share the gospel with people. And any time that the gospel is shared, it will always be met with some type of opposition. And because of this, Jesus says to rejoice, because when people do these horrible things to you, when they falsely accuse you, when they persecute you, rejoice, because they did the same to the prophets. And if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that they did that to him as well. The very Pharisees that hated Jesus and that had claimed to follow Moses and the prophets are the very same that if they had lived during the time of the prophets, they would have treated them the exact same way that they treated Christ, with persecution with anger, with hatred, and with violence, because the message of God always stands against the things of man, the desires of our sinful, lustful, fleshly hearts, always have a problem with the gospel, because the gospel compels us to something different. It shows us and reveals to us the ugly truth that exists within us, that we are sinners in need of a Savior and in need of grace, but the gospel also gives us hope. It doesn't leave us sitting there wondering and confused and nervous about, oh my goodness, I've, I've done so many horrible things in my life. I'm a terrible, horrible sinner, and there's no hope for me. Be encouraged. There is hope for you. And that's exactly what Jesus is sharing here. Because, you know, no matter where you go in this world, if you follow after Jesus, you will face opposition. He promised the disciples that from the very beginning. The opposition would come. People would not listen. People would do horrible, terrible things to them for the cause of the gospel, for the sake of him, for the sake of Jesus. And he gave them that encouragement that, you know, be, be of good cheer, rejoice, because they did the same thing to everyone else throughout history that has shared God's truth, God's message of hope and righteousness to this world. You know, friends, let us take the message of Jesus from the passage and use it as we strive to follow the Lord. Yes, you are poor in spirit, but Christ in Christ you are an heir. Yes, you will mourn, but he will give you comfort. I would like to take us to Romans chapter number 12. And starting with verse number 9. It says here that love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. 
fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. God, we are so thankful for these wonderful verses of Scripture that we are able to study today. And we are humbled at your great mercy and love toward us. I pray that our time of study today brought glory and honor to you. And I ask you give us the wisdom and courage to use and apply the truth we have learned in your word. We love you. God, we praise you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for sharing this time with me in Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. And I hope to hear from you all soon. And I hope to see you back here next Tuesday. God bless you all. And once again, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for joining me here today.